welcome to the History of the European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 102, The Elizabethan Playing Troops. Last time as we left Christopher Marlowe behind, I promised a consolidated episode on the player troops of the Elizabethan theatre. Even when they found more settled homes in the permanent theatres in London, the tradition of travelling for theatre didn't disappear. Many troops still functioned solely as travelling players, others visited London for short residences, and even those who took up more or less permanent residence in London still retained many of the aspects of the travelling troop. Detail of the lesser-known troops is largely lost, so today I'm going to concentrate on the better-known troops of the period, and you will have heard me mention them in passing across the episodes of this season. If some of this sounds a little familiar, then you're probably remembering some fact or quote that I've mentioned before in some other context. It's not essential, but you might also want to re-listen to episode 90, Creating a Profession, the Development of a Stage Player, which covers the development of the art of stage playing just prior to the establishment of the London theatres. The information we have about the workings of the player troops comes from several sources, but principally it comes from the various pieces of legislation that were enacted and commentary on events from the Privy Council, from Henslow's diary, and from some descriptions of locally visiting troops when outside of the capital, but these are few and far between. I don't think that there is anyone who would claim that we understand all of the workings of the playing troops, but there is a general consensus on how they operated and, thanks to the legislation on record, of what they were not allowed to do. However, as is often the case, there is a question of how vigorously legislation was applied, especially outside of the City of London, and how far the actors tested, bent and broke those rules. As we've heard on several occasions already, the actors and playwrights were always keen to test those boundaries. The Admiral's men, as the resident troop at the Rose Playhouse, feature large in Henslow's diary. The King's men are well known because of the court records and the connection to Shakespeare, but they were not the only active acting troops during the Elizabethan period. There were many touring companies, the details of which are largely lost to history, But what we do have are some records for the six troops that operated in London and at times as touring companies in the provinces. The story of these playing companies becomes very intertwined, with members occasionally moving from one troop to another, and all of them being affected by decisions of the government in the form of the Privy Council and the Lord Chamberlain regarding the limits of what was and was not permitted in the theatre. As I have already discussed, for a large part of the Elizabethan period, the theatre was successful in the face of serious challenges, thanks to social, legal and natural constraints, the latter being in the form of recurring summer epidemics and plague. And it is interesting, if not amazing, to see how theatre flourished at this time. The earliest recorded organised acting troupe was the Earl of Leicester's Men, and it is through them that the model of the Elizabethan and Jacobean acting troops was formed. The troupe was created in 1559 from members of the Earl's household. Records show that they performed personally for the Earl, but also toured the country to various cities. This was an informal version of the classic Elizabethan troupe, and we don't know too much about how they operated, But the role of the troupe in relation to the patron became formalised in 1572 when new laws regarding the management of the poor were put onto the statute books. 
Within these laws, actors could be classified as vagabonds unless they operated under the protection of a patron. Unpatroned troops could be subject to fines and even imprisonment. From that year, 1572, we have the letters that the players carried with them. These not only confirm them as the Earl's liveried retainers, but also as his household servants. That status meant that they could enter the City of London without restriction under his name, so that they were, in effect, able to perform anywhere in the country under the general protection of the Earl. However, they would also have needed permission of local councillors in the towns or the city boroughs where they were proposing to perform, before they could stage a play. The same document confirms that the actors did not expect any further financial support from the Earl, which implies that they had been maintained at his expense previously. But now, they were still under his protection, but could operate as an independent company. It was this model that the subsequent troops were to follow all the way through to the Civil War period and the general closure of all theatres at that time. Back in 1572, the letters mention five men as members of the troop. And the same five are mentioned on a royal patent issued in May 1574 in the name of Queen Elizabeth. That patent permitted the actors to use, exercise and occupy the art and faculty of playing comedies, tragedies, interludes, stage plays and other such like, as well within our city of London and liberties of the same, as also within the liberties and freedoms of any our cities, towns, boroughs etc., whatsoever throughout our realm of England. This was a very significant moment, as it meant the actors had permission to perform throughout the realm and explicitly took the possibility of censure and refusal to perform away from local town and borough councillors. Under this new patent, the plays were to be approved by the Lord Chamberlain or, under his authority, by the Master of the Revels, putting the control of what could and could not be performed firmly in the hands of the royal household. Although that sounds like it could be a serious restriction, As long as the plays avoided the censor's pen, which was mostly concerned with political and religious censorship, it did in fact give the company new freedoms as to when and where they could perform and, some contend, that it is the point that marks the beginning of the English theatrical renaissance. Another aspect of the legal restrictions on actors came with the English Sumptuary Laws of 1574. The law stated that citizens were prohibited from wearing any clothing which was above their social standing. As many of the plays were about kings and featured characters from the nobility and the aristocracy, and actors were considered socially just about the lowest of the low, well, it leaves the obvious potential problem for a performance being raided and a leading actor being arrested for wearing the apparel of a king. Fortunately, the Queen herself enjoyed the theatre, so a get-out clause was written into the sumptuary laws. The law said, Note also that the meaning of this order is not to prohibit a servant from wearing any cognizance of his master or henchman, herald, pursuivants at arms, runners at jousts and tournays, or such martial feats, and such as have had licence from the Queen for the same. So that licensing element included actors. You will remember that in 1576 the first permanent theatre in London since Roman times was built by James Burbage. 
He was a member of the Earl of Leicester's company, and one of the five mentioned in the letters of authority and on the royal patent, specifically to stage the productions by the troupe. The concept of a permanent home for an acting company was reborn in England. The Earl's men did well out of their royal connections of their patron. As a favourite of the Queen, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, was often at court, and his men are recorded as performing there for Christmas 1574 and Christmas 1575. Dudley's home was in Kenilworth in Warwickshire, not far from Stratford-upon-Avon, and the company performed there when the Queen visited on three occasions and lavish celebrations were held. A serious speculation about Shakespeare, given the proximity of the Earl's estates to his hometown, is that he saw their work on these occasions. But their greatest successes came at the theatre in London. From 1576 to 1583, they performed as a popular commercial company. But in 1583, three of their best actors left them to form the Queen's Men. This was part of a ploy by the Queen to put the over-ambitious Dudley in his place. He was sent abroad as commander of the troops in the Netherlands, and at least one of his actors accompanied him, one Will Kemp, who was later to find fame, taking on comic roles in Shakespeare plays. Others may have been there too, as entertainments are recorded in his camp, as he made his way across the Low Countries. Back in London, the troupe replaced its lost members, but they struggled to retain their popularity. The Earl himself died in 1588, which created a problem for the troupe. They couldn't operate without their patron. Ferdinando Stanley, son of Henry IV Earl of Derby, created a playing troupe out of his household retainers sometime in the early 1560s. They're not credited as the first acting troupe because to start with they were only entertainers, acrobats and tumblers, rather than specifically actors. As acrobats they were a well-known troupe, performing at court several times. Ferdinando's title was Lord Strang, spelt strange but pronounced Strang, so the troupe was known as Lord Strang's Men. In 1588, they were reorganised into a solely acting troupe when the best acrobats left to join a rival tumbling company. At the heart of the new company were three actors, including Will Kemp, who would later all be members of the Lord Chamberlain's Men. There is one recorded event that suggests they were a feisty bunch. When the Lord Mayor of London ordered the company not to give a performance in November 1598, they immediately went to the Cross Keys Inn, one of the four inns that were already established places for staging plays, to defy him. Lord Strang's men continue to perform at court and are also recorded giving performances at the theatre and another of London's permanent theatres, The Curtain. From the winter of 1591, one of the plots or cue sheets from their production of a play called The Seven Deadly Sins has survived. You'll remember that these were documents used to note where entrances and exits were made during the play for one particular actor and where props needed to be positioned. The plot mentions the actors, including William Sly and Richard Burbage, who were both later to join the Lord Chamberlain's company. It was in 1591 that Edward Allen joined Lord Strang's men and his presence certainly seems to have strengthened the troupe and increased its popularity. In early 1592 they turn up at the Rose Playhouse where for five months they perform 23 plays. Some of the earliest entries in Henslow's diary relate to these productions. 
Performances of Shakespeare's Henry VI trilogy are recorded in their repertoire, and it's been suggested that Shakespeare may have been a member of the company at that time. During their time at the Rose, Lord Strang's men became entwined with the Admiral's men, and following the outbreak of plague in London in January 1593, the two companies effectively became joined to form a touring company that travelled the country through the whole of 1593 and into 1594. This was entirely due to the outbreak of plague, which was prolonged and severe. London was not a safe place to be, and with the theatres closed, actors had no means of making a living. Touring was the only option for them, for all of its uncertainties. In September 1593, Ferdinando assumed a formal title as the 5th Earl of Derby, following the death of his father, so the troop was renamed accordingly. While the troop was on tour in April 1594, the 5th Earl died in mysterious circumstances. He became suddenly and violently ill, and poisoning by his enemies was suspected. Having no sons, he was succeeded by his younger brother, William, who picked up the patronage of the troop. The actors returned to London in June that year as the plague abated. The decimation of the plague was the main catalyst in the reorganising of the London-based acting troops, and the corps of Lord Derby's men transferred to the Lord Chamberlain's men. Those who remained decided to focus on provincial touring and only made brief returns to the capital, performing at court in 1600 and 1601. As a provincial company, they had no further significant influence on the development of the Elizabethan stage, but they remained a working troupe and are last recorded still performing in the provinces in 1618. After the enforced break for the plague, it wasn't the Admiral's men who returned to the Rose, but a troop called the Earl of Sussex's men. They were resident at the Rose in late 1593 and early 1594. The troop had been set up by the Earl in 1569, but we have much less information about their activities and members than for the other troops. At the time they took up residence at the Rose Playhouse, they were under the patronage of the 4th Earl, but he died at almost exactly the same time, and they were taken up by his son, the 5th Earl, Robert Radcliffe. Unfortunately, the records about why the residency at the Rose changed are almost non-existent, but the most reasonable suggestion is that following the catastrophic effects of the plague, Lord Strang's men were struggling, and Edward Allen, by then their leading actor, left them to join the Earl of Sussex men. Allen had married the daughter of theatre owner Philip Henslow, and as a close business partner, friend and relation, Henslow was probably only too happy to allow the relatively unknown troupe to take up residence at his playhouse on the strength of not only his family ties with Allen, but knowing that he was a draw for the public too. It's also possible that other members of Lord Strang's men followed Allen's lead, and the company now resident at the Rose may not have looked that different from the previous pre-plague incumbents. There are also a couple of tantalising clues in the repertoire of the time too. Henslow's records indicate the performance of Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, a play that had previously been the property of Lord Strang's men, where Allen had created the title role. The fact that it was in the current repertoire presented by Lord Sussex's men suggests that Allen had been able to make some agreement whereby he took the right to perform the play with him when he moved, which would have been a real asset as his signature role, and it may not have been the only one that he brought with him. In the same way, performances of Titus Andronicus lend weight to the idea that Shakespeare was a member of the troupe at the time. 
the Earl of Sussex men disappear from the record in April 1594. We can follow the leading lights of the company, Allen, Burbage and others, and maybe Shakespeare, into other companies. But there's no clear explanation as to what caused that troop to disband. It may be that the departure of one or more of these leading actors was a catalyst, or some unrecorded dispute or grievance arose, and a parting of the ways was the only solution. One thing we can be sure of is that there were some pretty big egos crashing around in that group, and the euphemistic artistic differences could be just as valid then as it is now amongst the creative type. And just to add to the confusing picture at the time, the Queen's Men, the troop that was put together as part of Elizabeth's ploy to bring Dudley to heel, turn up for a week at the Rose in April 1594, just when the Earl of Sussex men appear to disband. Whatever the reason for all these changes, things did settle down, with the troops configured into a new post-plague formation, and the Queen's men take on their life on the road in the provinces. Not much is recorded about them, but we see their shadow in history through the lens of Shakespeare. Several of his plays are reworkings of older plays that the Queen's men presented. King Lear and Richard III are the most obvious examples. It seems, at the very least, that Shakespeare saw their performances and was impressed. In 1564, a troop was formed known as Lord Hudson's Men, under the patronage of Henry Carey, the first Baron Hudson. He was the son of Mary Boleyn, sister of Anne, second wife of Henry VIII. Mary was reputedly mistress not only to King Henry, but also to King Francis I of France. Between all of that, she also married twice, her first husband being William Carey, a favourite of the king's. He died aged 28 of the rather mysterious sweating sickness. This illness that manifested as a sudden onset of severe flu-like symptoms and typically resulted in death within only a few hours is first recorded in 1485 and after a series of epidemics that rapidly rose and fell disappeared from the record after an outbreak in 1551. Its origin and progress are still a mystery. Lord Hudson was ennobled by Elizabeth and appointed Lord Chamberlain in 1585 which put him ultimately in charge of entertainments at court, among other things, and his troop reflected his position in their name, as was the custom. When he died in 1596 and his son George became second Baron Hudson, the name briefly changed to Lord Hudson's men again, but as he too became Lord Chamberlain in 1597, they were able to revert to the previous, more striking name. The troop existed as effectively a single company, from 1594 to 1642, and in that time went under many personnel changes. The records of activity in the early life of the troupe are sketchy, but it seems likely that they began their acting life in London at the theatre in Newington Butts. The site was near an archery range not far from London Bridge. The name Butts refers to the strips of land used to demark the lanes in the archery range, and that in turn harks back to the name for medieval strips of land that were the typical farming method of the time. Individual strips owned, or more usually operated by a tenant, abutted against each other, and therefore became known as Butts of Land. It's difficult to imagine now, but Newington Butts was a village outside the city at the time, so exactly the sort of place where early theatre construction was permitted. 
It's possible that the theatre at Newington Butts was a conversion from an existing premises referred to as a house or tenement, and was the first theatre in London to be completed, but the dating is uncertain, and as the theatre was an original build, the credit for primacy is usually given to that building. It was after a short stay at Newington Butts, and possibly another short residency at the Cross Keys Inn, that the Lord Chamberlain's men made their home at the theatre in Shoreditch. After three years there, they ran into problems with the landlord of the building and moved to the Curtain. The Lord Chamberlain was in a very powerful position at court, and Carey used it to manipulate the theatre situation to his advantage. From 1594, for about six years, theatrical performances were only permitted at the Theatre and the Rose, the home of his players and the Admiral's men, whose patron was also a powerful member of the Privy Council. Perhaps not insignificantly, these two theatres are relatively far apart, with the Rose in South London and the Theatre in what was then the northern suburbs. Shakespeare was a member of the company and its principal playwright. The company had the exclusive right to perform his plays, and most were first performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men and by the leading men of that company, Richard Burbage and Will Kemp, whose names we now know best through their association with Shakespeare, but they were the real stars of their day. Burbage specialising in tragic roles and Kemp in the comic. Burbage was the original Shakespearean King Lear, Kemp the original Bottom. In the autumn of 1599, the company moved to the newly built Globe Theatre. This, of course, is where they had their most successful and well-recorded years. Within the Lord Chamberlain's men, and other troops, the actors were either sharers or hired men. A sharer was a partner in the company and received a share of profits. The hired men were paid a wage per performance and given no share of profits. The principal actors tended to be sharers, and as such, for the Lord Chamberlain's men, their names are listed in the first folio edition of Shakespeare, whereas the hired men are not mentioned. At the Globe, there were seven sharers or partners, including Shakespeare and Richard Burbage and his father, who, between them, produced some of the greatest work of the period, not only from Shakespeare's pen, but from the likes of Ben Jonson, Francis Beaumont, John Fletcher and Thomas Decker. In 1603, under a patent from King James I, the troupe became the King's Men, and in 1608 they began to use a theatre at Blackfriars, which had been constructed from an old monastery, as their winter headquarters. That theatre was also managed by Burbage Senior and Junior, and functioned under the same share system. Despite the deaths of many of the original principal owners, Shakespeare in 1616, Burbage in 1619 and John Hemmage in 1630, the company continued right up to the Civil War period in 1642, when all theatres were closed and remained so for 18 years. The Earl of Pembroke's men were formed about 1575 by Henry Herbert, the second Earl. By 1592, they appear to have been a very successful company, with a share being valued at £80. It is notoriously difficult to equate these old monetary values to today, but £80 could have been as much as 25000 today. Little is recorded about where and what the Earl's men performed, but it's thought that Shakespeare was a member of the troupe in the early 1590s, as they're mentioned in printed editions of Henry VI Part Three and Titus Andronicus. 
1592, the company that was made up of defectors from Lord Strang's men and the Admiral's men following their co-residence at the Rose, went on a tour that lasted for the best part of a year. This was noted as being a financial failure, but they toured again the following year. In a letter to Allen, Henslow reports that the troop had returned to London after finishing their tour early and pawning their costumes, following another poor season. But in the best traditions of the theatre, they picked themselves up and toured again in the following two years. The company would probably have disappeared into the detail of theatre history had it not been for their involvement in the incident at the Swan Theatre in January 1597. The theatre was built and operated by Francis Langley and the troupe had a residency there at the time. This was the notorious lost play called The Isle of Dogs by Thomas Nash and Ben Johnson that I talked about in the recent episode on Thomas Nash. Even when the London theatres were allowed to open after these events, the Swan remained closed. Langley was a bit of a troublemaker as far as the Privy Council were concerned, having caused them some problems before, and it seems that they were out to teach him a lesson. The closure of Langley's theatre left the players with a problem. They were contracted to exclusively perform for Langley, but for the foreseeable future he was not being allowed to stage any plays. With no income or immediate prospect of a resolution to the situation, the company broke up. At least five members joined the Admiral's men at the Rose and Langley posted a legal suit over the breach of contract with him. There is no record of court proceedings over the issue, so it's assumed that Henslow and Langley came to an out-of-court settlement. We know that the actors remained at the Rose, absorbed into the Admiral's men. Lord Pembroke's men reformed shortly after that incident, presumably with the core of the members from the previous incarnation of the troop, and returned to touring until 1600, when they came back to London for a short residency at the Rose. After two rather unsuccessful performances, they are not mentioned again and, we assume, disbanded. And so we come to the Admiral's men, the main protagonists as far as Henslow's diary is concerned. They started life as Lord Howard's men in 1576. Named after their patron Charles Howard, the first Earl of Nottingham and second Baron of Effingham, they kept his name until he became Lord High Admiral in 1585, when they changed their name to reflect their patron's elevation. As you know, their leading actor was Edward Allen, and they were considered the finest of the acting troops until he retired in 1603 and the Lord Chamberlain's men rose to take the top spot. They're first recorded appearing at court in Christmas 1576 and then again in early 1577, the first of several engagements for the Crown. In the early years, 1577-79, they toured the South and Midlands of England and in fact didn't spend any lengthy time in London until the late 1580s. Prior to this, London wasn't particularly friendly to the acting troops, with the Lord Mayor trying to close theatres and curtail theatrical activity in other places too. Lord Howard was principal adviser to the Queen, and in 1584 was one of the few voices who argued against the closing of the London theatres, eventually winning the day. The Admiral's men continued to perform regularly at court and on provincial tours, with occasional short residences in London. It was during one of these residences in November 1587 that the company caused, or suffered, a terrible accident. 
Stage gunfire used during a performance went wrong and a pregnant woman and a child in the audience were killed. Records of the troop disappear for a year, suggesting that they all but disbanded after this event. The next mention of them comes again at court, performing in December 1588 and in February 1589. Later that year, the Lord Mayor stopped them performing at the request, it is thought, of the Master of the Revels, who had become concerned about subversive undertones in the plays that they chose. Touring and appearances at court filled the gap, and they briefly played at the theatre, where Burbage and Allen are recorded as sharing the stage, in a play called Dead Man's Fortune. This seems to be the only time that the two great actors perform together. Following the disruptions caused by the plague, the Admiral's men, performing at the Rose, hit a purple patch, producing a run of what appears to be very successful plays. Just as a reminder of the incredible work rate for these actors, in the 1594-5 season, 38 plays were staged, with performances six days a week. 21 of those plays were new. The next season produced 37 plays, of which 19 were new, and the pattern continued the following year with 34 plays, of which 14 were new. In 1600, Henslow built the Fortune Theatre just outside the City of London, on its northern border. That build was almost certainly prompted by the competition presented by the Globe, which was very close to the Rose. By moving to a location in a different part of the city, Henslow and Allen could hope to attract a new audience. The Fortune was built by carpenter Peter Street, who had just completed the Globe, and it was rather more square-shaped than any of its predecessors. Henslow's records show that it was their intention to outdo the Globe in every dimension. The playhouse was three storeys high, rising to about 30 feet under the roof, and each wall was about 60 feet on the inside, 80 feet on the outside. As a new substantial building, and no doubt because of the nature of the entertainment it was bringing to the area, it met with some local opposition. It was only with the help from their patron on the Privy Council, and a promise from Henslow to support several local charities, that permission for the build was given. When the lease on the rose ran out, the Admiral's men moved to the new venue. That move gives us an insight into the finances that a theatre could generate for its sharers. In 1600, a one-tenth share of the fortune was valued at £50. So, as a whole, the enterprise was valued at 500 In 1613, there's a similar reference to shares in the fortune. By then, there were 12 shares, and each one was valued at £70. So, the total value of the project had increased from £500 to £840. Allowing for the introduction of the two new shares, the original shares had increased in value by about 70% in 13 years. After their patron died in 1624, the troupe found a replacement in Prince Henry, son of King James I. He died young and the patronage passed to his brother-in-law, Frederick V, who held the position of Elector Palatine of the Rhine in the Holy Roman Empire. So, from 1613, they became known as the Elector Palatine's Men. Disaster struck on the 9th of December 1621, when the Fortune Theatre burnt to the ground. The fire destroyed not only the theatre, but the company's costumes, the props and the play scripts as well. Edward Allen, who had been long retired from acting since the death of Elizabeth, but owned the theatre, rebuilt it in brick. 
performances resumed, but things were never quite the same again for the troupe. Following years of decline, they disbanded in 1631. Some of their members were reformed into a troupe under the patronage of Charles II shortly after the restoration of the monarchy. The story of the acting troops continues to be complicated even then, but that takes us into another period of theatrical history, and a story for another day. Next time I'll continue the look at the practical side of the Elizabethan theatre with the further development of the Playhouse. In previous episodes I've talked about the early London theatres, the Four Inns, the Red Lion, the theatre at Newington Butts and the theatre, before its beams and spars were reused to build the globe. But now we can move forward and look at some of the later London theatre buildings. In the meantime, please do think about leaving a review to help others find the podcast or just let me know your thoughts by email. You can join the Facebook page or group or find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related things. You can find details of way to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There is also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 